Hi, welcome to Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Rappuccini's Daughter, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1844 short story about a garden of flowers and two dipshits falling in love. (laughs) (laughs) So, Katie, why Rappuccini's Daughter? Because tortellini, fettuccine, rappuccini. (laughs) When you're here... Your family. It's it's Hawthorne, folks. The only thing I love more than Olive Garden is Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, (laughs) Noodles Hawthorne in that order. Noodles Hawthorne. And Capolini's Daughter is a fantastic story. (laughs) Um, That's also the name of the game today, such as it is. But why I wanted to read uh, Frappuccino's Daughter has... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to do mainly with the fact that Hawthorne's stories about Italy, he so he's got this and he's got another novel, The Marble Fawn, which I hope we'll get to at some point. But he got real nutty with it on these mm-hmm. uh, on these Italian fictions. And, and you can see that here. There's lots of cool stuff in this. And one thing I think is great about it that I know that at least one of you want to talk about is that like we get this version of science here that is not the bubbling beaker shit that we yes. yeah. yeah yeah and so that's a cool sort of twist on it and i love hawthorne's tales of thwarted horniness and miserable <laughs> couplings yes. and this this delivers in spectacular ways and um you know I'm just excited to talk about it. Yeah, it really does. So I like this story because I, too, am a shrug hugger. Shrub, <laughs> shrub hugger. I did not think that one all the way through. It looked good in print. does not sound as good. <laughs> yeah, let's go Sh- with it. Shrub hugger. I am a shrub hugger. You're a rubber baby bubby buggy bumper. Yes. I- See, it's just that's how we are in in COVID land is can't say words good. Um, I do have a lot of plants and I do go to a weird amount of trouble with them. I spent a lot of the summer filling out this Hoya that Tristan's and my coworker propagated for me and it looks beautiful and I take an inordinate amount of pride in it. I do. (laughs) A couple of my plants have names, which is like one of those next level things, which I, yeah, pride and shame. Um, (laughs) But I forgot, I haven't read this in probably 10 years. I forgot the degree to which these characters are shrub huggers and (laughs) how much they like flowers because they are ass deep (laughs) in their floral arrangements. They are also obsessed with how things smell, which leads me to believe that this story is the jumping off point for all Pepe Le Pew cartoons. Correct. (laughs) Here's why. Okay. Uh, Stinky, stinky Euro guy, Euro, Euro trash person, Italian though, in this case, sees sexy lady. He loves her, but she is coy. So he goes nuts on her and near the end, it's discovered that he can kill bugs with his stink. 
that's yeah. the whole thing. I stand by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Pretty similar. Yeah. But like slightly more interestingly, this also reminded me of stories like E.T.A. Hoffman's The Sandman, which everyone will remember is the inspiration for the Freud piece called The Uncanny. I don't know if that's a thought. Maybe I'm just like going galaxy brain over here. But it might be that they both have a creepy vibe. But we'll see. There's all sorts of things to talk about here. <laughs> True. Um, no, definitely. It's, yeah, uh, which is, I, I mean, there's always a ton of things to talk about Hawthorne, uh, which is, which is great. Which, yeah, uh, like, you know, uh, why did I want to read what, what, what I'm going to, I'm going to say no to more Hawthorne, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's the matter, smart ass? You don't have fucking Shakespeare, best, best line of the departed. But, um, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is already, you know, better Melville than dead, uh, but I'd be just as down for better Hawthorne than dead, TBH. And, but, but I've yeah. actually, I'm not read. Yeah, I, Katie, I know you're down for that. <laughs> and you too, Meg. It's I'm fine. Actually, it's really, I mean, it's fine. It's not better Melville than Dead, which I really could read all of. That's, yeah. That's more on that, you know, just the confidence man and Pierre and all kinds of weird bullshit that nobody else has read. Speaking of, we might be getting to Pierre. Well, I, I won't, no spoiler alerts on that, but <laughs> um, <laughs> we have talked about it. I'll say that. Um, yeah, that's true. We're in talks. <laughs> I've actually not read all that much of of Hawthorne's short fiction, uh, but I would, you know, but I know short fiction is very much his jam, and, and I I have been down to read more. And holy shit, this did not disappoint this goth ass motherfucker. Uh, oh, I yeah. <laughs> I love how into the gothic American writers are. Like fifty years after it was cool on the other side of the Atlantic, and, you know, and as we've talked about uh, before, in such better read the dead classics as whenever we talk about Edgar Allan Poe. That's it's just a really uh, interesting reemergence of the genre to me, and, and in force. It's like American writers of the eighteen forties and fifties are super super into the gothic. Which more than I think even in its like kind of first first version you know and, and I think Hawthorne Poe Melville uh, others certainly are, are doing really interesting things that can't just be chalked up to anti-Catholic panic and to be clear that's kind of a dumb version of what the British Gothic was doing too but it's not wrong either <laughs> there's a great moment in here though where he's like what are you gonna do make crosses and everything's gonna be fine <laughs> There is, and I want to kind of think about that. It's like how if that's just sort of like a kind of you know making fun of itself moment of the genre, or if it's right. you know, he's just like these goddamn Italians. There could definitely be that in the American context, or just he's like, hmm, I am writing gothic fiction. I better put some anti-Catholic poetry <laughs> in here. You know, <laughs> seems like I'm forgetting something. Oh, it's yes. to hate Catholics. Yes, I have not yet dunked on any Catholics. Let me rectify that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, Rappuccini's daughter, fascinating. Uh, it could almost be proto-sci-fi, what with the mad scientist vibe of Rappuccini, except Hawthorne instead goes full spooky alchemist occult, like medieval shit. There's a ton on gender here that I think opens up a few uh, probably opposing readings. Also, this is a weird reference, but I will just say that the Voynich manuscript is my favorite stoned watching the History Channel at 2 a.m. object, and I'm convinced that whoever <laughs> did that hoax, uh, and you know, people say, is it really? hoax I, anyway uh they were just ripping <laughs> off hawthorne they read this and were like all right i, I got an idea now <laughs> but, are uh, we just gonna put a link to that because i 
Yeah, Only I mean, yesterday I learned what that was. I mean, fuck it. I'll I'll say just a little bit about it because I doubt it'll come up on the show again. Yeah, so it's a, it's at uh, it's at Yale now. The the, the Beinecke, um since I think the sixties. And basically, in the early 20th century, this Polish book dealer comes across this, uh, says he comes across this hundreds and hundreds pages long, written on vellum and parchment document. Uh, it, his name was Voynich. That's why it now has that name. And uh, the, the vellum's been dated to the 15th century, but it is all these, we- well, first of all, it's a completely indecipherable writing system. Like no one has ever been able to figure out if it's code, a cipher, a made up language, shorthand. And, but it never been deciphered. And it's got all these crazy drawings of plants in it. It's kind of a, a pharmacopoeia, but none of the plants are real. Like so it's it's either some weird ass shit that some monk who completely lost it made in the 15th century, or some equally weird ass motherfucker along the way just got the, their hands on this mass of 15th century parchment it was like i'm gonna fuck with some people so it's <laughs> it's it, it, it is like one of the those objects that it's like this is so fucking weird i'm just gonna yeah i'm just gonna fucking st- stare at the history channel and dork out on this. i know a certain group of people who would definitely say that that is the work of some ancient aliens no, uh, yeah, exactly. It yeah. is very much in that vein, for sure. But anyway, I, I, I'm convinced now that they just ripped off Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> well, I'm convinced. Too. I'm convinced too. Now, it didn't take a whole lot to convince me. But imagine that you're a monk and you're like, "What am I going to do at my job being a monk today? I'm going like, to make up a buttload of plants to do." <laughs> yeah. Also, I've heard this, and I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to say it anyway. Apparently. A leading cause of death for monks in like the 15th century or something was bladder explosions from working on their parchments so long that they just they did not get up to take a leak they just kept right on going (laughs) whoa that's not in the name of the rose the only source of medieval (laughs) manuscript writing i've ever seen no, that was a movie I watched at way too young of an age. I, yeah, um, me too. <laughs> that that was some nightmare material for for a while. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, it's it's actually kind of great, but it's yeah. not a yeah. for children. So today we are talking about incest. Like, of course, it, it's in the story. <laughs> it leads to it, and how to do science or not, and the. Italian setting, Catholics, the Gothic, etc. So, Katie, will you give us a summary? I would love to give you a summary. So, Cappuccino's daughter takes place long ago <laughs> at a daddy-daughter dance in Padua, Italy. A, a horny young lad named Giovanni is peeping out of his window and he sees a garden. He's very interested in botanic gardens. And you know by that that he is at one point pretended to be interested in one to have sex. So <laughs> this sets us up. Yes. Yeah. He he notices many things about this garden. Flowers are are huge. They're juicy. They all have asses like dump trucks. <laughs> and he sees other plants that are not as sexy but appear to be virtuous and scientifically <laughs> cultivated in the garden. <laughs> yes. So – then the hero of our story emerges, Papa Rappuccini. 
He is described as tall, emaciated, sallow, and sickly looking. So Hot. he's literally every- <laughs> yes, Hot. Yeah. Hot as hell. <laughs> uh, this is yeah, it's like Hawthorne describing himself. So um or, or Jonathan Edwards, perhaps. I was gonna say Jonathan Edwards falls right in here. <laughs> yeah. Uh he, he's yeah, but he's literally every Hawthorne character except for the ones who are functionally equivalent to giant meatballs and just sit in easy chairs being insufferable. The guy from the customs house sketch in Scarlet Letter who just eats constantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That shit sweats <laughs> grease. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, my favorite one is there's one where um a, this dipshit dies in a chair and the, Hawthorne spends a whole chapter describing how a fly landed on his face just to dunk on his own novel character. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> but anyway, back to this guy. He looks like shit. He is resting bitch face to the max and he's spotted hanging out with his plants. Because Giovanni is a guy who notices things. This will be important later. <laughs> yes. He observes that Rappuccini is not smelling, touching, inhaling, or fingering any of the plants. And um, <laughs> while Giovanni's ideas about what one does in a garden are not exactly regular, Rappuccini <laughs> is dressed like a beekeeper at Chernobyl trying to handle these things. Yeah. I, so I just want to interject. This isn't entirely like fa- fantastical, right? Poison gardens are a real thing. Like the Medici's like had one famously. And uh, actually, uh, my wife, Christine, was uh, was telling me about that. There was, they, uh, they sent me a link to like an article about some like rich British person that just made one not that long ago. And there are actually reports like within the like 1990s or early 2000s. And there were reports of visitors getting like lightheaded and fading walking through this because, because of the vapors and, and, and and, yeah, whatever it is, these plants are releasing. So I, this is one of those details that I was like, Oh, this is like spooky seat setting. It's like, no, actually like a poison garden. Like this would do that shit. (laughs) I feel like there's gotta be some, fucking genetic engineering though because like yeah for sure plants that emit just like poison pollen i don't think are actually that like plants that could kill you if you eat them totally but like yeah that actually kill the pollinators before they could even pollinate yeah it does that doesn't sound right yeah but i did do a lot of research on all of the plants i have in my home to make sure my baby could eat them and not die (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man we're fine we, we, we have uh cats one, at least one of which is quite dumb and so we cannot keep anything like that in the house they also knock them over right it's not just eating them it's like walking by yeah. and just being like splat fuck you yes they're the pa- plants and ca- yeah i have a tail and yes uh and and yeah ca- plants and cats are not uh are not friends well true but i'll tell you who is friends <laughs> or who wants plants to be and fail sons plants and fail sons plants and fail. that transition absolutely didn't work but giovanni has someone he'd like to be maybe more than friends with he's he's musing about how this garden is like eden but also not when he gets distracted by rappuccini's daughter a smoke show who looks like a flower yep. <laughs> throughout <laughs> 
Throughout the story, they do a lot of talking through windows and meetings and the garden, but there's a very strict no-touching rule. Sit on your hands, buddy. At one point, they're chatting and – or the first time they meet, they're chatting, and Rappuccini's daughter, Beatrice, says, hey, uh, you seem very into flowers. I bet you would be interested in hanging out with my morose and sinister father as a fun (laughs) treat. Yeah. It's a Hawthorne story, though. Like, who is not morose and sinister? True, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. (laughs) Goes with the territory. But Giovanni at one point asks her, like, what's up with you and your flowers? I hear you're a plant scientist. She says, (laughs) like, that she's shocked and offended by many flowers and says, no, I'm not. You don't believe the stories you hear about my science. Believe your eyes. And Giovanni responds like a fucking king. I may not believe my eyes, but I believe your lips, hubba hubba. And <laughs> I believe and, my ding dong. I believe my ding dong and everything it tells me. <laughs> There's a Twitter account called uh, Joel Dongstein, and it's Joel Olstein quotes, but God is replaced with the word penis. And um, that just <laughs> okay. That's, that's a follow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> But Beatrice didn't take it that route. She says, of course, my my lips that say good virtuous words. Yes, believe those. <laughs> At this point, Giovanni figures out that Beatrice has never been out of the garden and that she is a lonely island. She's on a boat, motherfuckers, but not because she doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> there are some rather unsettling things that occur that interrupt the flow of horniness between these two young people. We know that they're both horny because Hawthorne takes care to point out that for the first time in her life, Beatrice has forgotten about a shrub. So, (laughs) But about those unsettling things, Beatrice is fondling all these plants that her dad can't touch. That's, in fact, how they meet. He's avoiding these things and he calls out. He's like, hey, Beatrice, touch these poison plants. You can do it. And as she's doing this, some of the plant juice drips onto a lizard and RIP to the lizard. Her breath, <laughs> I, her breath or person kills a bug. I think it's her purse, her finger. And then later it's his breath that kills a bug. I'll get to all the bugs he kills. <laughs> <laughs> he actually kills like a whole swarm. Yeah. 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 Uh, but he also spots her out the window at one point <laughs> hugging a tree. So I did not he- make that shit up when I said that she's a shrub hugger. No, it's very real. <laughs> this was based on true story. But <laughs> no, it wasn't. But something is definitely up with this lady and these plants. We're mm-hmm. given to understand. Mm-hmm. We also meet this guy, Giovanni's family friend, Professor Baglioni, who <laughs> has huge bunga bunga parties. No, he doesn't. Um <laughs> He warns him that some highly sinister shit is going on with Rappuccini and that he best keep away. Yeah, I, this poor guy, right? Th- this character is in every piece of gothic fiction. Yeah. He's the one he's like, no, dumbass, don't go into the spooky castle. And invariably the protagonist is like, well, fuck you. I can do what I want, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> it's no, also no- like the total trope of like, but but Rappuccini, he loves the science, but 
he will always take it too far. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Well, that right. And I mean, like that character is always at least partially a hard on, right? Like, I mean, oh, yeah. Well, cuz you'd have cuz cuz if 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 they if they're just if they're like extremely charismatic and also obviously right, then that would just make the protagonist just an excusable dumbass. Their their rightness has to be offset by the fact that they seem to suck as a person, right? Like that's And I do think science is like really good unless you go too far with it and make poison people yeah yeah well yeah or, that's you know yeah <laughs> no, there's stuff, some stuff you shouldn't do but <laughs> make an eight fall eight yeah. foot tall human man out of parts yeah yeah exactly <laughs> that's turned out great though or just or with every discovery be like cool how do we make a bob out of it you know <laughs> <laughs> true <laughs> Well, this actually sort of, we get there. But anyway, we have Professor Baglioni. And after this meeting where he says, the science, the science, careful of the science. I am a professor who never takes things too far. So that's how I know. He, Giovanni's somewhat uneasy, but his boner always returns to win the day. And he stops worrying about it. He and Beatrice keep meeting in the garden. More weird shit happens. He gets her flowers, regular flowers, not giant poison flowers, and they wither in her hand. Uh, Later, when they're both in the garden, Giovanni reaches for a flower, and she screams her fucking head off and grabs his wrist. And the next day, he has a handprint on him like he's Wilson the volleyball from Castaway. <laughs> but it's a, it's a delicate, teeny tiny handprint. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah that, yes. that, that really makes it less unsettling. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. It makes it totally fine. Yeah. And he's like, what bit me in the shape of a handprint? Oh. Yeah. Well, other other key feature of the gothic the protagonist has to be kind of a dumbass right oh yeah yeah well this guy really fits the bill <laughs> so then we get the return of professor baglioni who comes in to try to blow the whole equation with a fable which he says is about alexander the great but is a literal description of the plot of this story <laughs> that he then tells giovanni like that was no fable that was what was really going let's what's this was happening he's experimenting on you Did, was hawthorne ever like a ninth grade english teacher right like he's like okay foreshadowing all right i'm gonna make this real simple for you guys (laughs) he really did put the shadows at the four (laughs) so we well he really had to keep up with the important gothic tradition of people in gothic novels have never read a gothic novel yeah yeah right. right it's like they don't know the thing they're doing and i'm just like don't go upstairs like have you never seen a horror movie Right. Unless, well, unless you're Catherine Morrill into Northanger Abbey, right? And then, like, exactly. the fact oh, that, true, yeah. But then the fact that you have read it means that you basically, the genre collapses, right? Because <laughs> you like, you, or you, you, you have to, that yanks you out of the gothic into, into comedy when, when, when you actually have, like, encountered well, a gothic. That's part of why that book yeah. is so cool. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And has a great, that book has a great, one of the great gothic twists actually in that book which i hope we do it someday so i won't say it but it's oh yeah good. no i yeah i would i would love to yeah turns out i really like jane austen i learned last <laughs> year <laughs> we're all we're all learning things about ourselves and the world there's some other shit that professor baglioni does that's 
funny, which is that he goes into Giovanni's apartment and says it smells like an old lady after leaving the perfume counter. But good, actually. <laughs> but if I stay here, I'll probably barf. Yeah. And Giovanni responds, um, smells, those are tricky, best never to trust them, as if he is trying to deny a fart when everyone <laughs> knows that he <laughs> He's like, you imagined it. <laughs> you smelled farts earlier so i think you brought the farts with you <laughs> Those farts were from whoever was here before <laughs> in my room that i occupy alone um so this is the part where he says that beatrice is a victim of her father's zeal for science everyone knows what's up here we've he said it 45 times he gives Giovanni a silver vial of an antidote to poison just a sort of blanket antidote and says this is good good shit my man my friend made it I'm sorry but this is like another Tristan you're so right like this is such a callback to another moment in history like what the fuck is he doing in this book that make, it's like somebody writing the crying of lot 49 right now it's just like right. you miss the boat bud <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well right and i mean i on, on two directions right well like one it's like you know uh it, we could be doing more like science fiction shit at this point in history but also like yeah hawthorne it, yeah it's like okay man we were doing this 50 years ago <laughs> you know yeah but but not in America. They, you know, from here, Americans are like, oh, well, this is fantastic, you know. But, but this one does still have some like, damn, those Catholics were fucked up. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's not it's not like anti-Catholic bias was not a 19th century U.S. thing, too. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, it just seemed less obsessive than it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. I mean, we're like, like the United Kingdom is sort of founded on we are not fucking Catholics. Do you That's understand? true. That's a good point. Whereas the U.S. just is kind of like, oh, like you know, the, I, I don't know. I, I think with the U.S., the problem is that it gets it gets like that gets grafted onto like, oh, this is like this is the immigrant, right? Whereas yeah. in like in Britain, it is like the, not being Catholic is like the foundational national mythos, you know? Yeah, it gets like also sort of like later in the 19th century like bound up with the the sort of i mean racialized like what we now call white ethnic so like italians yeah. and yeah exactly the irish and shit exactly sure mm -hmm. sure but that's not what hawthorne's talking about sorry <laughs> <laughs> hawthorne's talking about different stuff he's talking about rescuing beatrice here with this silver vial of 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 the good stuff and um Baglioni, I really want to say baguette, but I, I, I it's, it's killing me. It's nobody cares around here. Nobody's like <laughs> you. Really better preserve that the fidelity. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> nobody expects this out of me at this point. But he says that the vial will rescue Beatrice and bring her back to quote ordinary nature. And so Giovanni's got the vial. He's thinking and pondering. He's reviewing the unsettling lizard incident <laughs> along with the others. And he says he's going to make a test to see exactly what the fuck is up. Do the science. He's going to do the science. At this point, he notices that some regular flowers that he had in his hand are dying. He blows his breath on a spider, which kills it. And Meg, as you noted, this doesn't say much because many breaths in the distant past <laughs> could bring down much larger creatures. But mm -hmm. with everything all together, our guys be getting to figure things out. And Giovanni confronts Beatrice in the garden. And she says a whole lot of shit. But one of the things 
she says is that her father created the shrub that she is obsessed with. She also says, hey, buddy, that's no shrub. It's my sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's, she also says it is the true offspring of his intellect. And I only hope that Rappuccini off screen is saying, I love my large poisonous fail shrub. <laughs> success shrub it does exactly yeah. what he made it to do yeah yeah success shrub <laughs> and it's and it's a looker too you know but i mean she does go around hugging it yeah yeah well yeah. you would too if you were a poison lady who loved the shrub <laughs> i do it now i'm not even a point well a little point <laughs> oh boy so once we get to this point giovanni is super pissed about what's happened to him And we already know exactly what that is because Baglioni has told him Rappuccini was doing experiments on him. He kind of blames Beatrice. Maybe she's like sort of maybe in on it, but maybe he's just pissed. And she's very upset, wants to pray. Giovanni's hearing none of this. He makes one final attempt to be horny at her, even though he's mad and says, let's have a last kiss of hatred together and die because we're both poisoned. (laughs) (laughs) and horny too horny to live too horny to live too stupid to die (laughs) rappuccini appears at this moment holding his world's best dad mug and says hey what are you two up to uh by the way do you like how i used my science to make you both x-men so that you could get a boyfriend beatrice (laughs) anyway you can thank me later (laughs) beatrice is very pissed and says i would have been loved not feared And then she does a keg stand on the antidote. And because she's 97% plant poison, she drops dead right at Rappuccini and Giovanni's feet. Then, (laughs) somewhat hilariously, Professor Baglioni looks out the window and says, Hey, Rappuccini, you should have had your daughter experiments peer-reviewed, you fucking weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) JK, JK. What he actually says to end the story is, Rappuccini, Rappuccini, and this is the upshot of your experiment? (laughs) That's the real end. (laughs) Question mark. I I do appreciate, though, that Hawthorne gave our, our, uh, you know, sort of gothic trope, uh, hard-on slash knower of things, the opportunity to really own the principles, which doesn't usually happen in the gothic. I mean, that uh, often that person gets killed or they just get shut aside. It's like, no, he busted at the end. It's like, "Mm -hmm, I fucking told you, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because he is aware that he is in a story. Yeah, 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 right. (laughs) And usually, you know, we get some like full bore, like Castle of Otranto bullshit. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Katie, tell us, uh, tell us what happens to Mr. Hawthorne that he writes this. Oh, I'd love to tell you what happens to Mr. Hawthorne, but here's some context. Um, Your favorite, favorite fella. My favorite guy, my favorite guy. Um, Hey, did you know that the Medici's had actual poison gardens? Because that's the thing that happened. Tristan said, so it's context. (laughs) (laughs) And he talks about the Borgias in the story. Right? Am I wrong? I swear to God. He he talks about them. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. He does does mention the Borgias. Yes, he does, yeah. And they're, He's they're doing some for... very good Renaissance poison times. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> Borgia is another another nefarious sounding Italian family that we can include for historical detail in this uh, <laughs> this, uh, this Gothic story. Yeah, 
Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So Hawthorne, my favorite guy, Hawthorne. Well, I would like to address the anti-Catholic stuff a little bit because it's interesting where this falls in Hawthorne's literary career and what is going on at the time. So this was published in 1844, uh, originally in a magazine, and then later it shows up in the anthology Mosses Hmm. from an Old Manse, which I I love Hawthorne and I just – what a title, man. Is it it a review of Mosses that Melville – goes totally like spraying jizz everywhere about it hawthorne and his <laughs> i want to say hawthorne and his mosses uh, yeah i think it's right, hawthorne so it's and a review mosses. of that book right yeah and melville Am I wrong? if i recall it correctly it's he's doing a lot of other shit too but that may just be melville being the weirdo that we know and love um <laughs> but anyway so it was published in 1844 and to the anti-Catholic stuff, this is the same time when there were some huge and famous riots that uh, went on in Philadelphia, and also in 1844, there were these. Yeah. They were called the the Bible riots, and they were anti-Catholic nativist riots, and there was like a ton of violence because it had to do with basically like fighting about which version of the Bible kids would read. Well, and right, and I mean to to what you know Megan was talking about earlier, right? That the the sort of a, the kind of a, ethnic white panic about you know nineteenth century immigration waves. Like this is the this is the time of the potato famine too, right? Like which is the first oh, yeah. mass, uh, the, like the eighteen forties are when the first kind of uh, I like wave of Irish immigration and kind of massive numbers starts arriving too, which is some of the context as well. I, I, I don't I don't know the specific riots you're referring to, but I, I assume that there's probably a right around that time is that right katie oh yes that's absolutely that's entirely what's in the mix so it did have a lot to do with irish catholic immigrants and Mm. um as with a lot of anti-catholic stuff some of it was rumor about what people wanted to do and some of it was just them being catholic but they brought in a ton of people and just killed a ton of the rioters and so Mm. this is like not something that wasn't news or a big deal and it was mm-hmm. in philly which is not so far from hawthorne no. and his mosses no no i mean right let's you know when boston new york and philly at this at this era are kind of the and certainly in terms of uh where immigrants are arriving for sure like what did Haw- do, you, do we know what hawthorne thought about that because i mean i know like as far as like his, uh, you know, his sort of um, family origin story in the kind of like Puritan era, he was like, you know, I mean, not that he was like wholesale rejecting like religion or anything like that, but I mean, he's very skeptical to like, so, or, or uh, at least critical of like some of like where, you know, that, that, um, either where that kind of way of thinking led or just, you know, at least, you know, into pointing out the kind of hypocrisies and, and so forth. So I'm, I'm just, I'm curious, like was Hawthorne himself, like, uh, you know, freaked out about the arrival of Catholics or is it more that he's just, he's kind of like taking that sort of national mood and sort of running with it to do spooky Gothic stuff in, in this, in this story. I think it's more the case that he was running with the, like exactly what you said, the you know the kind of currents of what's going on. Mm-hmm. He was not like a big time anti Catholic dude or anything, but mm-hmm. he certainly was a Protestant guy. Yeah, but right. there's none of the 
if you read actual anti-Catholic fiction from the from 19th century America, it just doesn't look – it's really nothing like this. It's just not what Hawthorne's doing. And he also did later go to Italy. Mm-hmm. When he went, he was – like he was pretty committed Protestant guy. Mm-hmm. But it didn't stop him from being somewhat – enchanted by like i think that this is me speculating a little bit but there's something about the monks and shit that really fits with hawthorne oh and yeah so yeah that yeah. makes a lot oh, of hell sense. yeah yeah so i think that constitutionally like for him it's sort of a, a good subject well and uh, i also have to think too i mean like and we talked about this back with a scarlet letter Hawthorne is super like terrified by, but fascinated by, and also horny for the fucking layers of history and how messy and kind of like over determining it becomes. And I have yes. to think that like going to, uh, you know, basically it, like uh, a, a sort of form of Christianity that has a way deeper history than Puritanism in the United States. Like he must have been super. Like I, I mean, I know, I know we don't. The, we're like we're not following Hawthorne's biography that closely here. But just knowing what I know of the guy, like, I'm sure he was into that shit. You know? I mean, I bet he was into, cre- no, for you know, definitely. he seemed into creepy shit, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the reliquaries and stuff like that. Generally. Yeah. I mean, like, yes. interest in deep history plus interested in creepy shit just, like, yeah. naturally leads you to, like, Roman Catholicism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> apologies to our, our Catholic. I our think Catholic even Catholics can, no, can like... Uh, uh, agree with that particularly any catholics listening to our, to our show for yeah sure. totally we don't have we don't have federalist society types among our listeners you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Not that i'm aware of <laughs> also we don't no. have a patreon so we can lose listeners <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's a free show it's a free show okay so We'd go in a bunch of different directions, but one thing I will say is that just just to put a pin in the Italy stuff, uh, Hawthorne did make his way to Italy in the 1850s, and he <laughs> thing to thing to know there is that um he he grew he grew a mustache, and his son <laughs> Julian yeah. Hawthorne yeah his son Julian Hawthorne wrote a multi volume book. It's called like Mister and Mrs. Hawthorne. <laughs> It's all about his parents. (laughs) Julian, do better. Julian, come on, man. So he, in a quite a hilarious passage, Julian Hawthorne takes from Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne's notes, a a passage about how much Hawthorne hated this festival that he saw there. Like he was just Mm -hmm. bitching about, he was bitching about the festivals, but he did like the statues and that, comes up later in the marble fawn which is a later novel where he makes a character a statue i'll leave the marble fawn there but at any rate (laughs) the other quick thing i want to say is that so there's a obviously like hawthorne there's a ton of criticism on and just there's everything so there are critics who talk about beatrice as a part of this tradition that Hawthorne has of of creepy creepy ladies. There are also critics who talk about Hawthorne's couplings, mm-hmm. and some of it is sort of funny. So there's a critic named um, Alan 
F. Stein, and he referred to Hawthorne's couplings as enacting sham marriages, and he calls them misunited unfortunates. And that's <laughs> that's kind of great. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is rather funny. Anyway, we have this here. And I do think that it has to do with – it's important here because we don't get that fantasized marriage. But when we do, they're always – like, you know that whether it, hap- it happens or not in this story, it can't. It's going to be a fucking disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You mean like somebody has to die? Not – somebody usually – yeah, usually somebody has to die, but – Essentially, all of Hawthorne's couplings, I mean, I'm literally telling you a thing I wrote in a paper one time, but all of his <laughs> marriages, his marriages are penitential in this like really interesting way. And mm. for Hawthorne, though, they don't serve the kind of finalizing conventional function that they serve in a lot of other work so like you can expect a, a marriage to end in a prisoner or not or a prisoner marriage you know like these are these are like places where we we end up at hawthorne either starts there or when he gets to these yeah. couplings are like all fucked up okay yeah no i mean he did that that's a great point um and i never i guess i never really thought that much about the way he does um really push against the yeah the the kind of production of the sort of like you know bourgeois nuclear family type thing right that this isn't mm. yeah like i mean it is it's uh marriage is the problem for hoth right i mean like you know i mean H- hester print and fucking <laughs> chillingsworth right like i mean <laughs> yeah marriage is the fucking problem uh and well and and you know desire from outside marriage but yeah that is that's cool. That's interesting. I th- you're mm-hmm. you're right, Katie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, you. You get an A on that that paper. <laughs> well, you you fulfill the uh, the the quality that I give to my first years, which is um, give me a non obvious take. Yeah. No. No. But that's. Um, yeah. But no. And Marvelous. I mean, we definitely see that here for sure. Just just to say one last quick thing. Mm-hmm. This is a weird story in part. Because of something that the critical conversation has covered, which is that it's not really clear. Like, you could sort of read this as an allegory of the fall, like in Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and there's a lot of tension around that. Like, it doesn't it doesn't work. But you can also read these as not not at an allegorical level. Like, there's not a literal and figural component to everything but that we just have a bunch of symbols and so it makes for a very different reading and i think it just structurally the amount of times that the story gets repeated and repeated and the amount of times where we sort of flirt with the eden idea that's been talked about in scholarship it it's worth chewing on i'll say that mm-hmm. and not everything is worth chewing on yeah. Well, and that so, fits with our series of questions that we have about like what series of gender symbols and problems get raised here. I don't know if that's quite the right way yeah. to put that. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that is that's definitely true. I th- I think that's I think that's right. Because um, she does like th- I I mean I think there are a lot of moments that I find quite arresting. But one of them is when she's like, "That shrub is my sister." Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and actually, I you know, like I, I don't like one thing. You know, we want and taking <laughs> taking Megan's point, uh, famous better rather than point, which is I convinced is true that incest is the central problem of of uh, the American novel and I guess American uh, short fiction too. Uh, is I'm that- so smart, guys. Smart, <laughs> smart thing. I'm never going to write a book, so I got to say smart shit on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean uh, that like I had never. And, you know, so obviously we're going to talk about that. Um, I actually, I was so focused on like the fucking weirdness of Beatrice and Rappuccini's relationship that I didn't think of uh, the the plant, which are uh, I should have because the plants themselves are also so like heavily eroticized. Uh, and yeah, it's my sister, but she like wants to 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 bang the plant, mm-hmm. you know, like so. I mean, so it's like so the the kind of incestuous network that they've created. Definitely mm-hmm. does spread out into the garden as well. Although, yeah, like, I mean, if, okay, maybe that has an allegorical function. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's all these kind of symbols, uh, just kind of, you know, just a catalog of symbols um, instead. <laughs> Georgia O'Keeffe Fast Garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bunch of symbols that may or may not have, like, uh, there may, be, may or may not be, like, a, 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 a sort of coherent signifier, signified relationship around those. But, I mean, that, that would kind of suggests something about the way Hawthorne views the unconscious that that I think tracks with oh. other stuff I've read for him too, you know. Um, I mean, I think there's also like just to sort of like add another thread to this, which is that, you know, she there's all this there's a few moments of like her gorgeous virginity or whatever mm-hmm. and then the like dazzling fecundity of the garden. Yeah. So the sort of like production of it's like flower babies. I don't even know how to put it, right? Mm -hmm. That it's like there's a certain proliferation that we want from this that it's like not that we want, but that like the story is gesturing toward that's like fertile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and you know something else. And that's the whole thing with flowers, right? That it's like they're supposed to be the, the technique they use to teach your kids about sex. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and something else too, that now that you're saying that Wait, how the fuck does that work? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, that's so talking to your kids about the birds and the bees is a mistranslation from talking to your kids about the flowers and the bees. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because like the bees take Thank the you. pollen and they give it to the yeah. other flower. Yeah. Yeah. Pistols, stamens, all kinds of things. Oh yeah, pistols and stamens. All right, I remember that. But you know what's interesting too about like again as you were saying that and thinking the garden has to be part of how we're thinking about like the the sort of the the incestuousness is that that fecundity and Beatrice's you know health and like uh, vivaciousness until she takes the antidote that it's like I that in some ways that flips the sort of like uh, symbolics of sort of incest right in that like oh, it's the that it's like life giving yeah and like what the, it like the the contained. And sort of sort of self-referential uh, world of the garden is actually doing quite well. It's it's 
connection with the outside that presents the threat which like if you think of like poe like the 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 fall of the house of usher right it's exactly the opposite it's like the 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 the, the closed space is a space of decay and collapse whereas like so like rappuccini himself is kind of sick but he also like because he you know he's he's not like he doesn't have the ability to like talk to plants he's like given that to to beatrice so he himself is kind of outside this sort of closed system she herself with the kind of like if, if the if the incestuousness goes towards the plants that's doing great it's when it comes up against the 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 world that it really collapses and then so that makes me think okay so what is what does the closed system versus the open system of the outside signify in relationship to each other because it seems like it might symbolize something that's quite different than the way we typically think of what that would you know well also what's interesting is that when giovanni is invited in he has to become essentially her brother to be able to fuck her. Like he has to, like, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that. And there's also, I didn't, I didn't make this up. I read it uh, somewhere that I don't remember, but there's also this idea that, so the older, there's an older scientific idea about like curing like, Mm -hmm. and what is going on maybe the implication for me was sort of that like by fucking they might actually find the antidote you know what i'm saying Mm. yeah 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 that completely makes sense that it would be like some neutralization fucking yeah like as opposed to this cure that comes in from outside completely outside so what rappuccini wants to do is set up a nice little incest marriage for his daughter which is like it's fucked up but it's not the worst idea in the world given what he's already done (laughs) and the fact that they both seem to really like each other you know like they're they're into each other also like independently you know so this is not like well in a weird way he's kind of he's like He's he's trying to play back Victor Frankenstein, but but he like he like he he's create like he has created his daughter as this 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 person that cannot exist outside of this right and and he's like you know whereas Frankenstein's creation is like yo you know basically give me give me a mate and Victor recoils it's like he tries to actually do that <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um, yeah well there's a, like another thing that that's sort of like not it's not the same as the incest thing, but it's, it's interesting and related, which is like that the production, the sort of like fecundity of this is produced actually not by sex in the sense that like, where's her mom? She doesn't have a mom. She never had a mom. Like she's, uh, she's just made. And it's not like by in sexuality. And it's like, that's, you know, she and the trees are, producing more trees mm-hmm. <laughs> in but it's like i'm serious but like not in a sexual way like in a like and i mean that in the sort of like technical blunt like sexual reproduction yeah like there's reproduction but it's like it, osmosis or something yeah we're like at kind of affective care right that doesn't um that doesn't uh or just kind of some symbiosis that well yeah i mean the, like so well she can actually touch the plants right but like that like yeah like when 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 giovanni shows she's up she's their sister they, mom yeah 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 right, right. Mom's sister i don't know right it's a it's like chinatown <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
Yeah. So I just, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it does take up that, the, the incest theme, but not just in a lot of weird ways that, that are, that I think depart from a, a lot of what that would typically signify. I mean, we do have some commonalities, right? With the, the sort of the, uh, the patriarch who I think does demand to be rad as like this sort of overbearing and kind of malevolent force mm-hmm. that does kind of disorder something and, and has this kind of like sort of, even if it's not directly, st- well, it's directly stated by like Baglioni, but like, uh, unstated power over, over the family. Um, but that, 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 is represent it presents as a source of like a source of sickness and, and ultimately death. But he, I, but he, the, I, the, the thing is again, like Rappuccini also seems sort of external to this. Like, I mean, the, the sort of closed world to me really is, is Beatrice and the, and the garden and Rappuccini is kind of a, like he is an alien in that space as much as almost anyone else's. I mean, we see that like his, in, on his features, like he is, he is being made sick by this um, as uh, you know, as, as others would be as well. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Like he does appear as this figure who's playing God and trying to manipulate and pulling all these strings and he does wind up doing this experiment on Giovanni and all the rest of it, but in this other way, if Beatrice like breathed on him, he'd be a goner. Yeah. If he right. touched yeah. any of the flowers. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's isolated her by making her too powerful and that's actually sort of what he says at the end no one you know no one can ever fuck with you two because yeah. you're you're both poison flowers and it apply it applies to him too you know it applies to him too and Beatrice doesn't like this I mean who knows you know she had to assume drinking out of a a silver vial wasn't going to end well for her. <laughs> yeah. She hasn't read a gothic story. I just yeah. have to reiterate that these people don't know their genres. Right. Also, like, it is, you know, because it's Hawthorne and he always has to have a sort of awareness of these genres, actually, that it's like, is it not funny that she, like, bashes headlong into a bush <laughs> to hug it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like that's sure. like I just the image of it is amazing. Yeah, well, it's all it's also hilarious that she keeps accidentally like when killing she's, like, shit. Then she's killing, like, yeah, and, yeah. and then she's Kill like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta cross myself. Oh. Yeah, and, but but then of course Giovanni's like, look at all the swarm of bees I can kill with my <laughs> fucking <laughs> breath. <laughs> Uh, but it is like a weird it, it there's all these different sort of like impasses to the family and i think that that tristan is like at the center of this inquiry right which is like incest is a barrier to the notion of the nuclear family but so is like plant fucking yeah. and so is like a daughter that's like born of no woman and all of these like versions of it yeah right well i mean i guess that is it that there is actually there's like no really i mean this goes back to what katie was saying there's like no relationship in this story that can work right like oh i'm sorry have you never introduced your sister the tree to members of your family (laughs) exactly this is my sister she's a tree (laughs) you may have noticed we look a little different oh man (laughs) we did have the same dad different moms that's why um, she's a tree. So, moms. Can, can we talk a little bit more about Rabbitini and like uh, this, I, the, the man of science thing? Oh fuck yeah! Oh yeah! 
Okay, so I just got to read a little bit. This is when, you know, uh, Giovanni goes to, to visit Baglioni and he is like, Whoa, stay away from that weirdo. So this is what this, this is what Baglioni says. And we, we've kind of alluded to this, uh, but haven't directly looked at the passage. Uh, but as for Rappuccini, it is said of him and I, who know the man well, can answer for its truth that he cares infinitely more for science than for mankind. His patients are interesting to him only as subjects for some new experiment. He would sacrifice human life, his own among the rest, or whatever else was dearest to him, for the sake of adding so much as a grain of mustard seed to the great heap of his accumulated knowledge. I mean, he thinks he is an awful man indeed, remarked Giovanni, mentally recalling the, the cold and purely intellectual aspect of Rappuccini, and yet, worshipful professor, is it not a noble spirit? Are there many men capable of so spiritual love of science? God forbid, answered the professor somewhat testily. At least, yeah, here's where he's like, you're not listening to me, goddammit. Um, at least unless they take a sound review of the healing art that there's adopted by Rappuccini. It is his theory that all medicinal virtues are comprised within those substances, uh, which we term vegetable poisons. And then, yeah, okay, so he's made all this this, this kind of poison garden uh, to do this. So here's my question. We're, you know, this is the middle of the 19th century. We got a lot of science-y stuff going on. Uh <laughs> Science fiction is, you know, it's starting to take hold. And and I, I just like because some of this feels like some of the stuff that Frankenstein says. I think particularly the the eighteen thirty one edition where Mary Shelley kind of made it more emphatically anti-science um but it like it actually goes even more kind of occult and like alchemical uh than 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 frankenstein does and then you know if like if you remember um in frankenstein one of the things that's marked as being off about victor frankenstein is he's not doing science he's he's like he reads these doing fake weird yeah He's reading yeah. these old, like, kind of mystical tomes and stuff like that. But that seems kind of like what Rappuccini's doing too, as well. Except there is that sort of like, you know, more in a modern science claim about what's wrong with him is that he doesn't have ethics around his experiments. And it's just this weird mix of like the occult and the scientific and the the present versus like the distant and kind of like hidden past. And I just it's weird, and I wonder how much Hawthorne cares about it, and other than he's just creating a spooky atmosphere for his gothic, you know. Um. Well, I will also just note, as Katie did earlier, the absolutely amazing ending in which Baglioni sticks his head out a window and goes, hey, Dillholes, you should have yeah. listened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so. he's just, you know, you gotta, like, underline your, uh, your what is actually hard to parse as a critique. Right. Well, the richness of that is fucking incredible because he is the one who gave this supposedly great cure that was right. going to fix everything. And then he goes, ah, oh, Rappuccini, this is on you, buddy. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. It was his fucking anecdote that, uh, a- anecdote, antidote that killed the, that, 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 that killed her. Yeah. Um, well, he literally just killed this man's daughter and then he opens the window and goes, <laughs> peer review. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, so this is like probably outer space, but that's whatever but this is like medicine starts to get professionalized in the 1830s right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so -hmm. there's a degree to which like people are really trying to work out what real science and fake science is in a sort of like much more specifically institutionalized way so that this guy is like he's a doctor which is wild to me because it means he sees patients (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Where the fuck are they? Yeah, I know. We never, we, yeah. we never do see them. Well, and and, and uh, but also like along those lines, the idea of the, like, oh, his, he's fucked up because he does exper- like he basically just sees his patients as experiments. There is an extremely fucked up history in the nineteenth oh, yeah. and twentieth century of human experimentation and in the u.s context like obviously you know i mean with slavery and 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 you know right uh, heavily racialized as, as it was elsewhere so i mean that like th- that is there and and i, and I think that like that uh, the the theme of the sort of like the tyrant the kind of unaccountable tyrant which is a central gothic fixation i mean i do th- see a way that that can map on to this like this modern form of the kind of like the, the tyrannical and the the kind of epistemology as 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 violence in a way that's not not as wacky as maybe it might seem on the surface. Yeah, I guess. But I, I will say, Megan what? is entirely right. Where the fuck are the patients, though? Because we can't well, we can't we can't follow this uh, that all all that far because we don't see it. But yeah, anyway, it's just really interesting to me. It's just yeah. that like it's a ti- it's the title doctor, and yeah. but. But the sort of like substance of it is something like totally fucking wildly different. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is that for Baglioni, at least, it doesn't matter what happened to the patients because his attitude is all wrong. You know, like oh, yeah. it isn't it's he's not doing he's not interested in results. He's interested in something like moral purity independent of that. And Rappuccini certainly does not have that, obviously, but his daughter does. And so she's sort of got a foot in both worlds because she is kind of with Baglioni about the fucked upness of it. But she also is in this garden wonderland. And, um, you know, I don't I don't know. You know, I just it's it it the Part of the point of this story is that it's quite incoherent, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the completely and- what you said about like it just produces like uh, just so many symbols. They they are everywhere. And to go back to something Tristan that you said about like what's Hawthorne doing? Like does he like just what are his investments here or does he just want to make a creepy story? I always with Hawthorne lean on he just wants to make a creepy story yeah i mean and and and, and i i mean i i do accept that i would say it's something i i just remembered that goes to kind of even the more kind of incoherence of it but that i think is a fascinating detail is that like the garden is actually growing out of a symbol of a kind of early like an older like sort of power center that that is shattered that's ruined um so it's like this is a ruined garden that like presumably predates substantially rappuccini's family uh so this is out out of the view out of giovanni's window um from its appearance he judged it to be one of those botanic gardens which were of earlier date in padua than elsewhere in italy so ancient and already kind of an ancient space uh or in the world or not and probably it might once have been the pleasure palace of an opulent family for there was the ruin of a marble fountain in the center sculptured with rare art but so woefully shattered that it was impossible to trace the original design from the chaos of the remaining fragments so like Rappuccini as the kind of gothic villain, which is typically you know, the, the, the guy who has the creepy castle, like he uh, he and, and his science and his daughter's science have brought life back into this space, but like in a way that is also like very bound up with with death. So I like that. I, again, maybe it's just incoherent, but I do feel like there's an interesting 
um, idea there of like power systems that have replaced each other. But like what the meaning of that is, is not all that decipherable maybe, or it's just very fraught in some way. Layers upon layers of like the old world doing a certain, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 And like the one more of those is like the, um, that when he's telling Giovanni the story of Alexander the Great, like some lady had come from Iran, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to like poison the Alexander. Alexander right. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's yeah. like, this yeah. is just so Hawthorne that he's like, let me just like insert another sort of like quality that you are going to want to follow. And it's not actually that it adds up to nothing. It doesn't. It's smarter than even that. But it's like, forces your brain to go into like maximal interpretive mode, even if he's yeah. just trying to make a spooky story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and to be clear, what I love about Hawthorne is that he does the spooky story shit better than, you know, almost anyone I would say. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter that things do or don't line up like the point is exactly what you're saying, Meg, like that the that they're it, the the interpret interpretations proliferate much like poisonous shrubs that you may or may not <laughs> yeah. wish to hug. The other thing too is that Rappuccini wants to do to return to the Frankenstein thing. He doesn't want this to be a space of death and destruction. He wants to like create a new type of poison people that can be together. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like he's trying to figure this out. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Well, and, and also the 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 kind of the, the spooky story point and the the kind of proliferation of symbols, which you know might not relate to coherent a whole. Uh, as loath as I am to ever, you know, not just not do historical materialism, uh, I do think that, and, and I think at Hawthorne, I do think is an author that is is really rife for that with his like intensely historical concerns about the United States. But I mean, I do think that like you know this is a story, and and some of his other stuff for sure were like uh, you know a a, a reader that's much more psychoanalytic might be the right the best lens for it in the oh, like yeah, yeah there's the, like what we see here is like an account of the unconscious right or or, or like or, or some kind of narrative out of the unconscious where like yeah you do have a lot of symbols maybe they relate maybe they don't maybe the dreams tell you something maybe they don't and, and so you know what i mean so like i actually wonder if that mm-hmm. might not be a better lens for this story than the kind of like historicist one that i that i would want to apply to hawthorne in, in some of his other fiction well and those don't always have to be separated so of it's course, like no. fine to certainly have all of our things that we want but it's all it's you're you're completely right and i think that that's also like the that we can do psychoanalysis hour on the question of like fecundity as a quality that can exist without like where is sex in Mm -hmm. this yeah yeah you know it takes all these like disordered forms yeah or maybe not even disordered because like it's ha- it's hard to parse, right? That it's like, well, we certainly are capable of like making more of something, but not through sexual reproduction, right? Yeah. Yes. So this is to, I guess, or maybe I I know we're like we're not doing this, but I'm now d- doing it again. So sorry. But the one thing is that this falls in an interesting spot in Hawthorne's writing career because. This is like he's written he has written a novel he's written a novel but he's not written any of the ones like you fucking heard of yet. Yeah. You know okay. those yeah. don't those those don't show up 
until uh, the 1850s and later than that. So this is earlier Hawthorne. And for that reason, I think you can sort of like see him starting to work things out in this because he he returns to he like redoes this story a bunch. I think for reasons that are or I mean that's potentially interesting too, right? Like the way that the theme proliferates in oh, yeah. the short stories, this like mad scientist shit sort of differently. Like this is like Rappuccini is kind of a Chillingworth type of guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Of course, yeah. But structures built on ruins is like very House of the Seven Gables. Y- yes, it is. Totally. So there's so much house- here that then gets sort of like yeah. threaded into later stuff. Yes. And he returns to Italy and he and honestly, the reason why I mix this up with the birthmark is because they're very close to the same goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. So, because yeah. that's that's that story is about um, a husband trying to perfect his wife by taking off a birthmark and oopsie daisies, he kills her. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, I guess, I guess that that's certainly not countering. I, I think it. I think that's an argument for doing a psychoanalytic reading, even though it's. Even though what I'm saying isn't that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah. I mean, no, I think, definitely. Again, like, the beauty of this is that the psychoanalytic reading helps us, and it also, like, doesn't produce coherence. I yeah. mean, I love yes. that about it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I know we could go on for 40 years, but I yeah. think we should get to our game. Yes. About n- It sounds like it's about noodles. <laughs> well... Okay, so today, Capellini's uh, Capellini's daughter. Well, as a one thing that I find to be as fun as any game is is talking with friends, and so I was hoping that we could have pasta talk because I know that you both hold opinions about pasta and pasta mm-hmm. sauces. Megan, you one time made fun of me for not knowing about a I think it's a butter, pepper, and cheese type of pasta that's um that's that's good, but but Cacio um, e Pepe. Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't know about. <laughs> it just I didn't, means I didn't, cheese it, and pepper. It's, it's the fanciest, bestest macaroni and cheese in the world, <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah, it's just cheese and pepper. Except it's yeah. actually hard because it all has to like come together perfectly oh, with yeah. pasta water. And I've no. tried to make it forty motherfucking yeah. times. Yeah, I, yes, I, <laughs> me too. And no, <laughs> no. I'm surprised no. you're a better cook than me, and you still can't pull it out. Yeah, I've, I I want to try it again, but it's it's yeah, I it is hard. <laughs> So, um, it's one of those very like Italian things where it's like, oh, this is a spectacular demonstration of skill with simple things. Actually, this is uh, yeah, no, it, it totally, and then, which is one of the reasons why it's beautiful. Uh, also, this is a great game because I just made a gravy uh, yesterday, and we're having that again for for dinner. And for those of you who are not from the Mid Atlantic, uh, gravy is what you call red sauce that's made with meat. Yeah, and I am not in any way Italian, but I do have from that. Many kinds of meat. (laughs) Many kinds of meat. I do from that, uh, coming from that region, have a great love for uh, that that style of Italian-American cuisine. I mean, as a a cannoli whore, I can only support (laughs) this endeavor. Uh, uh. (laughs) So yes, I did make fun of you for not knowing what cacio e pepe is because it's delicious and it's just cheese (laughs) pasta. Well, a rice-a-roni will do the trick for me. <laughs> I meant to say pasta, pasta-roni. Um, but I just kind of want to take 
some time to go through pastas and just get your get your immediate reactions to types <laughs> of pasta. Are you? Yeah. In? Yes, I oh, made yeah. I oh, made yeah. mac and cheese last night. Hey, the real, okay, so- the real put it in the oven, make the cheese sauce kind, not any box bullshit. Oh well, p- pardon <laughs> pardon me. I'll be here with my hamburger helper. Um, I'm ge- I'm getting the I'm so and I'm also getting this from an article that categorizes pastas by short, long, sheet, stuffed, or dumpling. Um, <laughs> so these are the pasta cool. types. Mm. So so hot takes angel hair. Love it, delicious. Hard to get it not to stick together. Yeah, I no, it's not, it, it's. Uh, I, I tend not to be the biggest fan of um, the those the uh, the kind of like clam sauce type things. Like they're fine, but I just yeah. I, I think for me, like pot, and I know this. I mean, this definitely marks me as not in any way Italian. Uh, for me, pasta is the sauce vehicle, you know. And uh, I just that I just tend, tend to like. I don't tend to like what angel hair is served uh, with. You don't want to eat the hair of an angel, a real angel. <laughs> they harvest angel hair from real angels. Yeah. I mean, I see what I see what hair does to my cats. You know. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh. All right. Here's so we're gonna move on to fettuccine. Now, fettuccine is an interesting one because you can get the the thick fettuccine or the the slightly slimmer fettuccine. Mm-hmm. So, I just again. Thoughts, feelings, concerns, opinions, fettuccine. I mean, I will eat the hell out of a fettuccine with some cream sauce for sure. So, So, uh, fettuccine is the only vehicle for Alfredo, which is, as I hear, Tristan, because the (laughs) flat noodles are what you need to be coated in a cream sauce. It is also the Mm -hmm. best for making at home because you can put it through the machine and you don't have to get Mm -hmm. circular noodles. You just like you, you make a sheet. You can actually cut it too if you wanted to. And then you could just dry the noodles over your rack. You Mm. should not have asked me about fettuccine because I have the most opinions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I did. (laughs) Um, Fettuccine is the best noodle of the noodle kind. Mm. You know, we're not talking about fucking tortellinis right now. No, fettuccine no, no. is the best. Make it at home; it'll change your life. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I would like to try making pasta. It's someone one of the things I haven't done in the kitchen. When I when but. we were kids, my dad used to make tortellini every year for Christmas Hanukkah, and um, he so like you know make the sheets and put them through the machine, and then he would make me and my sisters twist all the tortellinis ourselves in what he referred to as his juvenile labor force no that's yeah that's (laughs) see that's smart and that also i mean you probably were a smarter kid than than i would have been because i'd have been like this is a cool game and you know like so basically like yeah, like the kind of <laughs> sort of like neoliberal gamification <laughs> of the work. The work. Instead of calling like, it a hey. juvenile labor force. Yeah, well, right. No, I mean, there, there he's, he's giving away the game, hearkening back to the like 19th century. But it's like, hey, associates, we got a cool contest. <laughs> Who can sell the most units? Totally <laughs> need the fastest. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, 
it's a shame because this is a really great reason to have kids so they can twist your tortellinis yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, since I will never make tortellini at home, I still have no reason <laughs> to ever have kids. Yeah, well, yeah. Fair, fair. You can only have pasta but, uh, with but- children. Children and pasta are a, are a mutual set of objects. They go together like macaroni and cheese. But the <laughs> next noodle we're talking about is not macaroni, but fusilli. Immortalized in Seinfeld with a fusilli jerry, a pasta shaped Jerry Seinfeld who somebody sat on and got gravely injured. I don't remember how that episode went. But what do we think of this type of pasta? Those are just twisties, and- right? Okay. Yeah, they're the twisties. Oh, yes, they're the, they're they're the twisty ones. And here's another difficult question for you. If you're making a mac and cheese or cheese type something, is it ever appropriate to use a a fusilli type of pasta? I always use or do you need do you need I always shop? use fusilli for cheese pasta because it gets all in the cracks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I think it's 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 very it's a very serviceable pasta for for those reasons, and, and not I mean cheese uh, cheese uh, cheese sauces uh, absolutely, but but any sauce it's really going to kind of uh, uh, catch in there. So yeah, it's 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 good. I, I, is I that endorse. Um, is that under the genre of short pastas? That's a yeah, that's a short that's a shorty right there. Um, that's it, it goes with the wagon. We it, I mean it's not like the wagon wheel guys. It's uh, it goes with the bo- it goes with the bow ties. Oh, okay. Um, Mm, what do yeah. you which are the is it actually spoiling the surprise if you tell us what you use with your gravy tristan what i use with my, you mean what what yeah, pasta yeah, yeah. i use in the gravy do, you, it does you, include uh, pasta at some point yes. <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> usually pen usually penne uh occasionally spaghetti okay i'm glad to know yeah yeah i'm glad to know too I have another question for you. It's also pasta related. So scale of one to 10, one being the least gross and 10 being the most gross. What do you both think of hamburger helper? I've never had it. <laughs> if you've ever so had it. So I can it. only go by my brain, which is it's a nine. <laughs> High class Portland lady you know over here so that, has so never t- had so t- 10 is most Tristan. gross. Yeah, uh, like w- w- one. I mean, what? What's not to yeah. like? <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I, you know, I, I, I <laughs> my taste in food range from extremely fancy to whatever the opposite of that <laughs> to hamburger helper. So, <laughs> uh, I just don't. My parents I, I, didn't do a lot of processed stuff, which is like. Yeah. Um, as a lover of hot dogs, I'm really not like bashing on non fancy. I'm just like, but it's in a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, yeah. What's in the box? It's a delicious meal. Yeah, dead. It's an 84 percent salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember. Minimum. Dad, my dad used to, <clears throat> I, I like on Sundays would always make sloppy joes for lunch, and, and that was all until like it was like sodium is bad for your heart. Oh my god, this has like three hundred percent of daily value, and then sloppy joes went away, and that was that was kind of kind of tragic. <laughs> but, <laughs> sad. Uh, kind sad. Sloppy joes are some good eats, though. Um, Here's another question, and Megan, you may you may have to use your imagination on this, but Tristan, I'm curious because you you are pro hamburger helper, tuna helper. 
tuna casserole is not as revolted as it sounds, it really but it's is. not my favorite. It's not my oh, favorite. Oh, I love tuna See, <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> Both my Mid-Atlantic and Midwest uh, backgrounds are kind of converging around like casserole. Good. Um, but it's not my favorite. You know, it's it's not. It's a, I, I would eat it if offered, but I would never make it. So I'm, I'm going to say no to tuna helper. Okay. Well, I, I will say throw, throw some peas in there and you got a delicious meal. Uh, but <laughs> Megan. I am now just less hungry than i've been all day like i'd have never had i've certainly never had tuna helper but i don't would you like would would you want to say no to a a a a nishwa salad never okay well this is just the fucking wisconsin version of that all right (laughs) wait it has zero of the other things a nishwa salad has in it it's got, it's got the tuna. It's got some noodles in it. You know, yeah. frequently Nishwa salad. Well, Sometimes, and, but you, not not a, for a not for a Puritan for a, uh, it's not a Puritan. Whatever that purist. Purist. Uh, yeah. No, it's tomatoes, lettuce, green beans, potatoes, tuna, dressing, mm-hmm. eggs. Mm-hmm. What of those things are in tuna helper? Uh, well, there's definitely eggs, and there's some of the ingredients in the dressing are, have to be the same as the sauce. There's just no is there way anchovy? No, no two ways about it. I, they're yeah, not probably. That's what's called. <laughs> yeah, the the, anch- the anchovy is what the uh, hydroxy uh, hydroxy uh, agglutinate uh, you know, <laughs> triple <laughs> triple biperoxide. Uh, that's what that means. It comes from anchovies. Uh. You know? And the oh, I forgot all about the tiny fucking olives. The reason it's called a salad niçoise. You can put olives in your. This is getting grosser all the time. (laughs) I do it. Wait, I have a. Here's a question, Megan. If I really and you know you know Mm -hmm. me now, if I tried my level best to make a good tuna helper that I thought you would like. Or no, I would. I know you wouldn't like it, but if I tried my very best to to get somewhere with it, it to, to the best of my ability, put some peas on top, made it look a l- little better than than it does. How much would I have to pay you to to eat it? Forty eight dollars. <laughs> okay. That's a yeah. All right. All right. Well. And and what do you cost? What it costs to make? So forty nine dollars. okay Uh, tristan i assume you you would eat it for free but uh, i'd i'd make it nice i'd do it i'd do a bang up job oh yeah (laughs) so is it frozen peas or canned peas because frozen peas are not gross and canned peas are gross oh of course frozen peas am i wrong on that i'm not no no i'm not a monster frozen peas (laughs) frozen peas are really not bad no yeah frozen peas are good They'll dress anything up, <laughs> even a even a tuna helper. And final question: I hate to revive old internet discourse, but what do you think is inside of the hamburger helper glove? There's a what? What are you? What's a glove? No, it's the the, the <laughs> like. I'll, all right, go back to the 1980s. You're watching, I don't know, fucking uh, after school cartoons, and the, there's Tristan, a, there's the glove. What the fuck are you? T- talking about we did not have a pro- an object that provided us with cartoons oh it the, the fucking this is hamburger the thing you help. could have made your child into 
fair warning <laughs> that you could have made him into a nightmare raised by overeducated hippies. Uh, I I mean, he still is <laughs> raised by overeducated hippies, but but ones that you know are are, are down with the 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 you know the uh, the uh, after school cartoons. Yeah, Hamburger Helper. He's the cartoon figure. He's the he's the mascot of Hamburger Helper. Oh, and what's- looks sort of like the the puffins. The 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 guy with the rolls. Yes, and I yes, the Pillsbury Doughboy, and I do not, I do not want to know what's inside that glove. I'm just, I'm not. I, I assume hamburger helper. Oh, that's great. Maybe it is full of. That, how funny would that be if they're just the, an oven the, mitt full of hamburger helper? <laughs> I don't know that the 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 hamburger helper guy always made me a little uncomfortable, but. <laughs> He, he's the hamburger helper. <laughs> oh, he's the help, the part that helps. Yeah. He just, yes. That's what a hand yeah. is for. Ah. <laughs> you bought this hamburger helper. You need the helper. You don't just stick your dick in the box because that's kind of what it's starting to sound like. <laughs> I mean, whatever tickles you, <laughs> it helps your hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> That's hot dog helper. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone listening, I sure hope this isn't your first episode because we went off the rails. It happened. I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, anyway, this has been better than dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tesslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to tell us what your sister is. She could be a tree. She could also be a mailbox. We're interested. <laughs> Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review and subscribe. We still have stickers and buttons. Would love them. And next week we have Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with the screw tape letters on deck after that. So thanks, comrades. <laughs> <laughs>